0: year, we've all had to reimagine our lives, searching for new sources of inspiration and new ways to connect. Hello. Hi.
1: Hi, hello, hello.
0: I'm Yana Peel, Global Head of Arts and Culture at Chanel, and this is Chanel Connects. Bringing together creative game changers from film, art, dance, music, and fashion in conversation from their homes and studios. I'm in the north of Scotland. I'm in my spare room. It's
2: a very quiet area.
0: Horrific shade of yellow.
2: Still in New York City.
0: Some are old friends and collaborators. Others are meeting for the first time. All are focused on what matters most and what happens next. And now, we get to listen in. In this episode, can dancers social distance choreographer Akram Khan connects with Tamara Rojo, the Artistic Director of English National Ballet and a lead Principal Dancer. The conversation was led by James Whiteside, Principal Dancer at American Ballet Theatre, who's also a choreographer, recording artist, and drag queen.
2: Could you tell where my head was at when you found me? Me and you went to hell and back just to find me. Akram and Tamara, I am so happy to be talking with you today. Uh, I am in my New York City apartment in Brooklyn, and there are the beautiful sounds of construction across the street, letting me know that I am still in New York City. Uh, I would love to just talk to you a little bit about what you're doing right now, what city you're in, what room you're in. Let's start with Akram. Well, I'm at
3: home in Wimbledon.
2: Uh, It's a very quiet area.
3: Uh, And I'm just with my family. I'm just holding my two kids back. I gave them strict instructions not to come in while we're doing this. And I'm sure they're going
2: to break that rule. (laughs) Well, that'll be a nice diversion. What about you, Tamara?
1: I'm also in London. Uh, The company went back to work a few months ago now, in August. And we did our first live performance, which was also broadcast online online. So there is some hope and there's quite a lot of activity in the studios. The dancers are all back in bubbles. We're creating new work. So it's not all gloomy, uh, but it is very, very different from what we had planned, for sure.
2: Well, congratulations. I am very jealous. (laughs) Can I ask you both what your favorite silver lining during this time is?
1: I think for me has been uh, that from the very first day we were sent home, I started teaching from my kitchen and we decided to share this online with everybody because I gathered that there would be so many dancers around the world in very similar situations. And our mission and vision of EMB is sharing the art form however we can with as many people as possible, wherever they are, whatever their means. That's what we're here to do. And so I felt that the right thing to do was to open that class for everybody. And we actually had, uh, at the end, four million people joining us for class. And we also shared the previous recording of our performances. These were recordings that we had done just for archive. They were not professional recordings. But the musicians, the technicians, the dancers all agreed that we should share that for free. And the messages from people from all over the world that usually don't get to see what we do, saying how meaningful it was for them to be able to take class every day, to get up, to feel motivated, to watch our performances online. It just kind of reminded me how important what we do is and how meaningful it is for people everywhere.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't know about the both of you, but I always, always, always feel better after moving my body. And I think that's a beautiful thing you're doing, sharing that with everybody. Four million people, goodness gracious. That's incredible. That's amazing. (laughs) All right, Akram, what's your silver lining? My mom came to stay with me at one moment for a week. She's never lived with me,
3: though she lives next road. We had to quarantine her in my house because my father was stuck in Bangladesh. So he came back and he took over the house and my mom had to come here. It was complex. But she lived with me and with my family. And what was beautiful was to spend time with her and my family. But what she said to me suddenly changed the way I was perceiving the world and the environment. She said to me at one moment when she saw me really down, she said to me, we're all forced to stop traveling. We're all forced to stop physically connecting. We're all forced to stop moving outside our home. We're all forced to just stop. But just change stop, the word stop, for pause. And I did that. And I thought in that pause, perhaps pause is a moment to reflect The word pause just allows me to breathe rather than stop, because stop felt for me like it was the end, (laughs) like it was death. Being with my mother and my mother kind of reflecting those thoughts to me
2: really helped me get through this. And I think a lot of people have connected with their families in ways that they never would have otherwise. In all honesty, I didn't think
3: I would ever want to Zoom (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a big fan of technology. You know, it's one-dimensional. But because of the situation, technology allowed me to look at technology differently and have a different relationship with it. Because without being able to connect with people, I would have been truly isolated. So that was a big shift in my thinking.
2: I also think that without technology, we would not have been able to pause, as you said. It would have Mm. been a stop. exactly. And I think the world has... Kept moving in a sort of strange and interesting way because of technology. Tamara, as we all know, dance careers are so compressed. What is lost in losing a year in the performing life of a dancer?
1: I mean, if you think that you train for about 12 to 15 years and you probably Dance, if you're lucky and you don't have any major injuries, for 20. That's the kind of return on investment, (laughs) if you want to look at it like that. You put in 15 years for 20 years of a career, and then suddenly one is lost. It is enormous. It's a huge percentage of someone's career. Most dancers have gone through injury, and that is in itself usually cataclysm. It's it's just everybody really struggles with, with that, with Stopping, literally. But there is that other side that is allowing your body to heal. So this seems to be a purpose Mm -hmm. for that. This seemed to have no purpose whatsoever. It was something that nobody could control. And that's why I, I tried so hard to, like you say, make people move even if they were in their kitchen and to try to reopen the company as soon as we could and hire choreographers and bring back musicians and just to reactivate the sector and to start doing something, no matter what, no matter how little it is. Because as you say, it, it feels like your, your life is running away from you when, when you can't dance and this is your, your vocation and your motivation and your passion.
2: I haven't stopped since I was nine years old. Yeah, You start dancing and you just don't stop. Anybody who gets anywhere does not stop unless they have a, a, a very difficult injury. So this is incredibly strange for, for working dancers because this is the first time they've had to sit down for a little while and figure out, okay, am I able to do anything else really?
1: Hmm. And emotionally, it's even deeper than that because for many of us, myself included, I have no living memory of myself without describing myself as a dancer. Mm. I decided I was a dancer when I was five. So I only identify myself as such. And I think that's for the majority of us. We very quickly become in our heads dance. And so when you're not dancing is is a very difficult question to ask yourself, who am I? And it's a question that dancers come across when they retire. But when it comes halfway through your career, to suddenly ask yourself, who am I if I'm not dance? is It's not an easy conversation to have, let alone in the middle of a global pandemic.
2: You know, I think a lot of dancers have taken to social media to not just entertain themselves, but to also connect with others uh, when we can't all hang out together at restaurants, bars and clubs and in ballet class. One way that people have remained connected is through dance on the internet. And I wanted to get both of your takes on dance trends. How do you feel about ballet dancers hopping on pop culture trends?
1: I am convinced that in fact any art form always grows and becomes better when it is influenced by others, by other traditions, by folk dance. Because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is contemporary folk, it's what people are doing at home, it's what they're dancing in the street. I actually have no problem with cross-fertilization, with contamination of the art form. I have done nothing other than contaminate our art form since I became artistic director.
2: <laughs> I want to know what the dance landscape looked like when you both first began your career.
1: Oh, it was a very different world. <laughs> um, there was no social media. So the only way to knowing what was happening was through either television programs. So my references were fame and also the documentary uh, ballerina that Natalia Makarva did and the subsequent one by Peter uh, Shafus, ballet dancer. So that was the references that I had at the time. And that meant that in general, at least from the Spanish perspective, ballet was dominated by the big opera houses. So it was Paris Opera, uh, it was the Royal Ballet, American Ballet Theatre, Um, New York City Ballet and Bolshoi and it was the Kirov. And at the time I remember uh, when I was very young, the big star coming out when I was a student was Sylvie Guillem. I sneaked into a rehearsal. She came to a gala to Madrid. She was performing uh, Billy Forsyth in the middle, someone elevated. So that was unbelievable to see uh, for me as a, as a, young girl and that was like the big breakthrough it was Nureyev running the Paris Opera uh, Billy Forsyth creating on those dancers Sylvie yeah, that was kind of the trend that inspired me at the time
3: I grew up in a very small community Bangladeshi community and the world that I was in was filled with potholes um, you know we were my parents were immigrants who came to London uh, I was born in London, but they had just lived through a war. It was called East Pakistan, and then it was the war happened, and then it formed Bangladesh in 71. I was born in 74. So I grew up South London, and uh, I mostly stayed sheltered within my community. So all the dances, all the music, my body was used, if you like, as a museum, because my parents didn't want us to forget, and they didn't want to forget, the horrors that they had gone through. So all those music that was created around the war, um, about liberation, about freedom, about being human, about being kind, I learned all the choreography. And I would perform it within the living rooms of many of my aunties' places. And then something changed when I saw uh, on television Michael Jackson... It was like a whole world had opened up. I used to scratch my skin. My mother always told me that you were scratching your skin all the time until you saw Michael Jackson. Well, I was scratching my skin because I thought I would be white underneath it. Because everything that I was exposed to, the heroes were white. The Marvel comics, I was a big fan of Marvel. Any cartoon that I saw on television, any hero, any uh, programs like Knight Rider, (laughs) you know, A-Team... And then Michael Jackson, when I saw him on TV, and he was Thriller that I saw, I was like, oh, there's somebody similar to my colour, and he's amazing. So Michael Jackson was the one that pulled me out of my community, and I didn't want to be Bangladeshi anymore. I just wanted to be Michael Jackson, MJ. I <laughs> yeah. made everybody call me MJ. <laughs> and or I wouldn't perform for them you know I was very adamant at the age of 7 and then you know Charlie Chaplin I discovered Charlie Chaplin on TV and then Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali these 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 people were my superheroes
2: I also found Michael Jackson when I was very young I I his history double CD was one of the first albums I ever had and I wanted to dance to his music before I knew What dancing really was or had ever taken classes. And I don't know if you watched the documentary about the alleged victims of Michael Jackson, but that created a paradox in my heart because the music and and the artist have such a special place in my memory. And when I listen to his music now, I just, my eyes tear up because it's so incredible and it's also so complicated. And I want to know how you feel about that. I absolutely feel the same. You know, I, it's, it's as you said. It's really
3: complex. Um, at that moment, he saved my life. Really, mm. I have to say. For me, he was he was everything because I could identify myself with someone on screen on TV. But we have a huge tendency all around the world to look the other way when someone is super talented. It's unacceptable, personally. I do not agree with it. Wrong is wrong. And yes, everything is cancelled. All my respect for you is cancelled. If you abuse your power or do something wrong, whoever the artist is, I mean, he's not the only one. There's so many. Mm -hmm. So it's really complex to listen to his music. But at the same time, I'm torn because it just also brings back these beautiful memories as me copying him in front of a mirror. You know, I got someone, one of my cousins, to get the thriller jacket, you know, the red one that he wears. And I wore it to school. I wore it on the street. And my mother would say, this is really embarrassing. But I would wear it to sleep. You know, that's how much, you know, he meant to me. So these kind of contradictions, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really challenging.
2: Tomorrow. I want to pivot a little bit and ask, you know, when you took over ENB, you realized that you had never danced a role choreographed by a woman. And I want to know how that made you feel and your actions afterward.
1: It wasn't like it was um, something I had been consciously aware of. I belonged to a company for most of my career, the Royal Ballet. And I joined that company mainly because of one choreographer, Kenneth MacMillan, and his mm-hmm. repertoire. And because also it was a ballet-based, classical ballet-based company. And I wanted to perform all those classics. And I wanted to perform all the repertoire of Kenneth and Ashton. And so for a long time, I felt like I was achieving the purpose for which I joined the organization. And then... Slowly but surely, I started to think, mainly when I was working with some contemporary choreographers, that the way my body was being handled, I wasn't completely comfortable with. Or the way that I was being asked to expose myself to a certain extent and and the dynamic between men and women. I felt there was nothing tender. There was nothing feminine. There was nothing... Motherly, there was nothing. Caring, it was not all of them, you know. I like to say that all male choreographers had a way of choreographing will be ridiculous because it will be the same as saying that all women choreograph the same. We're all very different. Each individual is different. But I had a couple of rehearsals where I genuinely didn't want to be there anymore or I didn't want to continue to do the same things anymore or to represent myself in the same way as a basically either a sexual object or a sexless object. And so once I was an artistic director and, you know, once you have the power to change, I had the responsibility to make change. And so I started commissioning women. And the first program we did is She Said, and I commissioned three women Between She Said and She Persisted, uh, which was kind of less than four years later, where it was a second full program of female choreographer, we commissioned over 30 works by women, between works for the stage, films, uh, small works for education, outreach programs, etc. And I don't know that that has proven anything, you know, and I wasn't, I didn't do it to prove anything. I just wanted to widen the conversation. That's all. You know, I just thought 50% of the population should have a go and they should have a say and we should see what they do. And I don't also have any revelations. You know, very often people ask me, so do women choreograph differently? Every individual choreographs differently, you know, and it is really irrelevant. And if that's all we take from this, that's good enough. You know, that... Every individual is different, and therefore we need as much variety of voices as possible. What I hope is that in the audience, one or two people will find their revelation. But for that, we need to present uh, a diverse work on the stage.
2: I absolutely agree. And I think ballet and traditional dance forms tend to be a, a little resistant to change because it's so rooted in classicism. Yet I have witnessed firsthand what people really want, and it is the variety. And uh, I want to ask Akram, how do you tackle the resistance to change in your work?
3: Um, I've always felt that I was the other ever since i went to school mm-hmm. so change became a very important part of my thinking since i was small really for me if people are resisting or some institute is resisting then i know i'm doing something right because one resists when they fear the other and so i usually resist back you know i, I my I use my family really a lot in my thinking, um, and the way I've shaped my thinking, or well, my thinking has shaped. My father was always wanting me to be Bangladeshi, especially when I started getting into Michael Jackson and breakdance, and mm. and he he was he was the one that really pushed me to remain the same, and he knew I was changing. And my thinking was changing, but how, how can somebody not change? They go to school in England, you know, they're, they're brought up in a different culture. His background is different. And so he was my first resistance, I would say, you know, and I never gave up. And my mother always told me, she was the opposite of that. She said, with change comes fear for some people. And that's because the unknown is always going to be, will create fear. But you must trust your instinct and you must trust that what your voice is and who you are
2: should not change. Why did you decide to heed your mother's wishes as opposed to your father's? Because my heart was going in one direction, that my
3: father was not part of that direction. If anything, I felt imprisoned by him. Um, He wanted to define me in a certain way. And my mother says, be who you want to, just discover who you're going to be. It doesn't matter whether you're from this culture or that culture. I'm going to give you some values through through the years, some moral values. But other than that, discover yourself and express yourself. You know, I couldn't speak a full sentence apparently until I was seven. But I could do a choreography of 10 minutes from the age of five. So my first language was movement. That's how I communicated. So when it came to later, you know, whenever I felt resistance from organisations or institutes, I'm much, much more... um, I'm game. Let's go. I'm going to push.
2: Tamara, how how did Giselle for... Uh, with Akram come about? What's the uh, the origin story of this amazing production?
1: For me, it started when I watched Dancer in the Dark with Björk. And I was sitting in the cinema and I adore Björk and I adore, adore the film director. But halfway through the film, I suddenly thought, this is Giselle. This is basically the story of Giselle. It's the story of this woman that feels nothing but love and hope. And despite everything, she will continue to dance and hear music that nobody else does and hope for the best and just continue through her journey. And everybody else will misunderstand and everybody else will eventually destroy it just because they can't have it. That made me think um, that Giselle could be told in many different ways. And also when I was very young, I was nine years old, I saw Culver Ballet and I went to see their Carmen and I think I was 10. And again, it was such a revelation. Suddenly ballet was anything I wanted it to be. It could tell any story. It could have any language. Suddenly my head exploded. And I remember I came back home and I scream at my parents all night, you have to go, we have to go again and again and again. So for the whole week, I made them come back and we saw Carmen and Giselle, I don't know how many times I was like, we need to see this again, you need to see this. So, you know, in my mind, I had for a long time thought that Giselle deserved another go, And so, Dust was an amazing experience for the company, for the dancers, for everybody. And obviously, I wanted to continue this journey with Akram. And so I kind of challenged him and I said, "Okay, I know you can do this. I know you can do Giselle because I know you can explore the story without fear. I know you will be able to find new ways of telling the story And I know you will understand the deep spirituality of the second act of the other world. And thankfully, he agreed.
3: I was always um, suspicious, to be honest with you, with any ballet company approaching me, because I felt intimidated always. But when I first met Tamara, already I felt someone who was daring to listen that gift is lost. When I speak to artistic directors around the world, so many of them want to talk to me, but they're the ones doing the talking. But Tamara is a listener. And that's why I, the difference between an artist and an artistic director. When she approached me with Giselle, I was, a li- I was really nervous about it because it's one of the most beloved stories in England. And already I also felt intimidated by it because I'm not white. And I've not worked at the opera house, and I don't come from that world. But I felt an immense love and passion Tamara had, not for the product, not for the result, but equally for the process. She wasn't asking just about what kind of show are you going to make with Giselle, but she was asking what do you need?
2: What will last from this time? What is something that we've discovered during this lockdown, this pandemic in dance that will find its way into the next life?
1: I do think one thing that might last is the combination of live performance and digital consumption of ballet. And actually... What I mean by that is not only the recording of live performance, which is the main thing that we have been doing up until now, but actually the whole concept from the beginning being one of a creation for digital consumption, which would be a different kind of work than the work we produce on the stage. And already, as I said, we are right now creating uh, five pieces of work with the sole purpose of them existing online. So the whole concept for the beginning is that people will consume in in their screens and therefore they are a different type of work. And I think moving forward, I do believe that there will be those parallel activities now for companies, that there will be creations that are a concept for the stage and for live performance. And there will be others or versions of those ones that will be solely to consume online. And I think that probably will remain.
3: I agree with Damara that dance generally will uh, have those two avenues. I feel digital right now is a placeholder. We haven't yet found the real kind of space for it, but it's it's a placeholder until the life gets back. (laughs) But we've discovered the possibilities of what could happen with digital. And so I completely agree with the matter that yes, there will be two avenues, but I don't feel that life will go away because it's the oldest ritual that we have. What it means to be human is to come together, to share stories, to experience those stories together. It's the oldest ritual. And that just doesn't disappear from one pandemic because it didn't disappear from the other pandemic and it won't disappear from the future pandemic.
2: Tamara and Akram, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me today. I am such a fan of both of your work. It really was a pleasure talking to the both of you. I loved hearing your perspectives, and and uh, it was just fascinating. So thank you.
1: Thank you, James. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
2: Thank you. Hang in there, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening to Chanel Connects. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they're released.